Emma mentioned that we, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we, we jumped off into the uh, gospel according to John. Uh, if you, hopefully you were able to uh, watch online those last couple of weeks as we uh, had the first two messages in that first chapter. Uh, if you weren't, though, you can always catch up uh, by, by visiting our website and either listening or watching, watching, uh, watching those if you so choose. Uh, in verse 1, we saw that John began by simply saying this, in, in the beginning was the Word, and that Word, that we translate Word, is the Greek word logos, which is a, is a pretty important and powerful and dynamic uh, ideology and principle and philosophical aspect of the ancient uh, Greek culture. And uh, we won't teach on all of that today, but it, it, I, I, I tried to help you to see that basically what, what it seems like John was doing is introducing it and, in a conceptual kind of ideology of undefined greatness and majesty. And then what he went about doing was defining it. I'm going to define this word for you, this living word found in Jesus. He, he took logos, a principle that would have been known in his culture, and he redefined it by connecting it to the existence of God, and the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ. About whom John said in verse 12, He, that is Jesus, the Word, the Logos, came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. They rejected Him, which is one of the ways in which people respond to the person of Jesus, is to reject Him. But He goes on to say, But to all who did receive Him, He gave them the right to be children of God. We use the term reclassify, right? So if we, if we reject uh, Jesus, then we kind of stay who we are. But if we receive him, we're reclassified as not a people to the people of God. Part of the, we're the children of God. And, and John will later write in a letter that he wrote to the first, uh, some of those first believers that, that, that the great love that God has lavished on us is why we are able to be called the children of God. That's not, we're not and this is a birth that happens not uh, of, our, of our parents, our, our physical, biological parents, but instead it's people who are born of, not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of the will of God himself. So that was that, that introductory. We saw Jesus as Lagos and as light and as life, and we want to receive him and receive all that he, that he has for us. Last week, uh, we took a, uh, a look into the ministry of John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. And we saw in verse 7 and 8 that he came, not as, he came as a witness. He came as one who was, a, who was a forerunner, who was an announcer, one who was pointing. He came as a witness to testify about the light, that is, the light being Jesus, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And we had that climactic moment at the end of, of last week where we saw Jesus coming toward John. And John makes this bold declaration, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that was such a definitive statement. And it was such a, a different kind of statement than what, the, what would have been understood in the sacrificial system of the Jews. The lambs that were sacrificed simply covered sin. So that the sin, in a sense, could not be seen. That when, when God saw the blood of the Lamb, He didn't see the sin of the people. But what John says is something different. Because this sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the Lamb that would be slain, Jesus who would be slain, doesn't just cover our sin, but He actually takes away our sin. He removes it. And if you're like me, you've got, probably got, maybe it's a short list, but I've got a little bit of a longer list of all those things that I am so incredibly joyful about that God has removed from me. They're no longer part of me because, not because of, not because of anything I've done, but because the Lamb of God was slain 
that I might have life and the removal of my sin from my life. Does that, do I still have some consequences of some of those sinful things I've done? Yep. And you probably do too. But God has removed the penalty of sin by removing uh, the, the sin through the, sl- the slain lamb of God. So we want to pick up today. We want to begin to kind of transition from that introductory kind of this is who the, the Jesus was, the logos, the light, the life that we can receive or reject. In this ministry of John the Baptist, we got a little bit of a transition now. John is going to transition and there's going to be less about John the baptizer and there's like this handing off of the baton, so to speak, not exactly, not 100% yet, but a beginning of handing off the baton so that more of the attention is going toward the lamb than it was the one who is the witness to the lamb, the one who's testifying. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take verses, beginning in verse 35, we're going to start there, and we're going to walk down through the rest of the chapter, down through verse 51. I'm going to kind of narrate you down through all of that, make some comments, and then we're going to say, basically, at the very end then, I'm going to offer up to you what I think are, are kind of three or four kind of important takeaways or lessons we can see from this interaction that Jesus is having with some of his very first followers. And it begins... When the day after John had said that in verse 29, in verse 35 and 36, it says the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, two of his followers, two of the people that he was uh, mentoring and offering, giving spiritual direction to. So he has two of them with him. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he again said, look, the Lamb of God. So let's just take a minute as we get ready to move down through what will then be interaction with Jesus and some of his First in, some of the first invitees by him. Uh, let's, let's just commit this time to God and ask God to open up our hearts to his teaching today. Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for those who are here and are watching online. Thank you, for, Lord, for the opportunity of, of technology and skilled uh, paid and volunteer staff uh, that, uh, that, that we're able to just... Uh, gather in this way again, whether online or in person here on the, in, on the lawn. We just are so thankful for it, God. And we pray that in this moment, as we look into your word, that we wouldn't just know a little bit more about uh, the ministry or the person of Jesus or one of his uh, first followers. But instead, Lord, that, that you would use this time to change us by the power of your word, by the, by the teaching of your Holy Spirit. Would you, God, please, would you be our teacher today? And help us, Lord, to leave this place transformed more into the image and in the likeness of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. So John makes this declaration again. In the, in, and I, I don't think it's accidental that he makes this declaration, right? In, and it's said that there's a couple of his disciples with him. And so we, and as we continue on, you can see that in verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this. Heard him say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and of course, John probably would have done some teaching around this idea of, of the Messiah, of the one who was coming to take away the sin of the world. And so they, they heard him say this, and they, and they followed Jesus. They began to walk after Jesus. And now, there probably wasn't a permanent departure yet from John completely, but at some level, they broke some of their allegiance to John, which was a pretty significant movement by these guys. And when Jesus uh, turned and he, and he saw, I, I don't know how long they were walking after him, but at some point, Jesus noticed that they were following him, John says, and he asked them, what are you looking for? I love that simple little question from Jesus. And I wonder if Jesus asked us that today. <laughs> Just that little intriguing question. Hey, Dave, 
I noticed you're kind of interested in me. I noticed you've shown some, uh, at some level, some, some interest in being one of mine. What are you looking for? What are you looking for in life? I wonder if we could even just take a few seconds and, and think about that if Jesus was coming to us right now and, you know, looked at us and said, hey, hey, Gary, you know, what are you looking for? What do you want? What do you want your life to be about, Joe? Laura, what do you want your life to be about? You think about those kind of intriguing, inviting questions. <laughs> I love how Jesus is, is and we're going to talk about this, how he how is able to, to offer these individualized connections with people, asking these two disciples, what are you looking for? They respond to Jesus in verse uh, 38, the end of it. They say to him, Rabbi, uh, you know, where are you staying? Where you at? Where you, where you, what are you doing? Where are you staying? Where are you going? And Jesus says to them, come and see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. And so some, you know, people have wondered, well, it says there's two disciples here and we're going to see in the very next verse that one of those disciples is Andrew. One of those disciples of John is a man by the name of Andrew. Some have wondered, well, who's this other disciple? Who's this unnamed disciple of John's that ends up, you know, kind of transitioning and becoming a disciple of Jesus. Some have suggested that it's Philip because he's going to later be mentioned in, this, in, the, in our text. But most scholars are, have some consensus around the fact that it's probably John himself, not John the baptizer, but John the author of this gospel. John has a, has a tendency to mention himself either indirectly or not at all. And so because of that, and because of some other factors that we'll see a little bit later, it seems like that most likely these two disciples are Andrew and John that are being invited by Jesus to, uh, to come, and, come and see where he's staying, to kind of come and, come and hang out with him. So Andrew, what Andrew does, it says, if you're picking it back up in verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. Uh, the words mean the same thing, the, the anointed one, the one that Israel was expecting. Expecting The most technical definition would be the long-anticipated anointed one that we are waiting for. <laughs> That's kind of like it brings in all of the nuances of exactly what it was. So he says, we have found the Messiah. And he brought Simon to Jesus. So Andrew goes, tells his brother, we found the Messiah, and he brings Simon to Jesus. And Jesus does something kind of interesting. First time he meets the guy. When Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. That is, again, not, now not, we got a lot of Johns in this, right? We're not, not John the writer, uh, not John the baptizer, but John his father. He says, you will be called, that's who you are, you are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, or Peter, which means little rock. So the very first time Jesus meets this guy, he says, you know what? I got a little bit of a different way. You're going you're gonna to have an identity change. I'm kind of taking what you were to a certain degree, and I'm making you someone else. Again, to a certain degree. Now, often, it, it, it seems that name changes like this weren't absolutely that uncommon in the ancient world. A lot of times, you would receive a name change. In fact, some people have even suggested it's almost like a nickname. And you know how you get a nickname, right? You either get a nickname for something you have to live down, <laughs> or maybe something they want you to lean into, right? Sometimes it's something that they want you to aspire to, or other, other times, maybe we get nicknames because we do something, it's embarrassing, and we're forever characterized by that embarrassing moment, right? And Jesus is doing that a little bit with 
Peter, with Cephas, with Simon. And I'm, I'm sure that, again, very first time I meet the guy, this guy thinks he has the right to change my, <laughs> change my name or give me a nickname. That, again, had to be very, very intriguing to Peter. So we continue with the story. So we're, at this point, we've got Simon, I'm sorry, Andrew and most likely John have been invited by Jesus to kind of get involved with him. We've had one of them already say, you know what? I think we found the, found the one. I think we found the Messiah. He brings his brother. His brother has this interaction. And then the next day comes. So it's a pretty active week in the ministry life of Jesus. The next day, verse 43, it says, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He now doesn't wait on somebody to bring someone to him. He doesn't, and that's why some have suggested maybe Philip is the second disciple because Jesus, and there's no other context except Jesus going and looking for him. So it says he, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. So now it isn't Jesus has just got a couple of people. He's noted, hey, uh, oh, these are two new guys back here, you know, uh, Andrew and John or Andrew and Philip, whomever that second one is. And then, oh, hey, yeah, nice to meet you. I'm, I'm the brother of Andrew. Oh, yeah, I know who you are. You're Simon, son of Jonah, but no, or son of, son of uh, John, but now you're going to be uh, Cephas. Now Jesus is pursuing someone. He says to him, follow me, and follow, that word follow is such. In fact, I, I've done a, a, a series, a teaching series here at Calvary called Follow, and it was all built off this word, akalutheo. Akalutheo is a, is, a, is a compound word. It's a mashup. Uh, the prefix ah is one that, that can mean uh, to gather in unison or do something collectively. And, and uh, uh, lutheo uh, is, the, is a word that means uh, the road or a way or a path. And so together it means to be together on the way, to be on the same road. It wouldn't be wrong to say to walk in the same footsteps. That's kind of the idea. And, and, and inherent to the understanding of akalutheo is kind of a twofold meaning. There is this inward intimacy. There's this internal like relationship this, that exists. More than casual acquaintances, these people who, when Jesus is inviting him to follow, uh, when Jesus is inviting um, Philip to follow him, he's asking, yes, him to be a part of his life. But he's also secondarily, in addition to inviting him into intimacy and a, and, a, and, a, and a deep, meaningful relationship, he's also expecting him to have an external, active oh, obedience and or allegiance to Jesus' teachings. And so it's not only the friendship, and it's not only the obedience and the allegiance to the teachings that Jesus would, would give him, but it's both of them together. So it's that, it's that friendship and allegiance, that intimacy and that obedience. The story goes on to say, now Philip was, what, was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Where the Andrew and Peter uh, are both fishermen. Uh, Philip perhaps maybe was a fisherman. Uh, Bethsaida is a town that is known for its fishing industry. That's uh, one of the, uh, basically the, the uh, kind of the trademark industry of that, of that area. And so when, when, they're in, when he goes, uh, goes back to Bethsaida, uh, Philip finds Nathaniel, whoever Nathaniel might be, could have been a good friend, doesn't say they're related, but he finds Nathaniel and he tells him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. So in the same way that uh, Andrew brought Simon or had this revelation and went, and went and got Simon and brought him to Jesus, Philip does the same thing with Nathaniel. Nathaniel, showing how he is uh, very contemporarily, culturally aware, says, Nazareth, 
can anything good come out of Nazareth? And what he means by that is Nazareth had a reputation. To be known as a Nazarene was not something complimentary. It wasn't that it was that bad of a place. It was just insignificant. I don't know where you grew up, but you might have uh, an area near where you grew up was always kind of like disregarded. It was a small town. Uh, Scholars suggest somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,600 to 2,000. Not much going on there. Not much reason to live there. And so if anybody came from from Nazareth. Now, Jesus wasn't born there. Of course, he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And so many people just, uh, Nazareth had that kind of reputation of, well, ain't much good that comes from there. That's kind of what he means by that. There's not, there's nothing of really great report that comes from there. The kind of people that live there, you're not even willing to waste your time with them. So can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it's interesting. Nathaniel says to Philip the same thing that Jesus said to Andrew and John. Come and see. Just come and see. Come and check it out. Invitation, right? Come and see. So evidently he does because in verse 47, we see that Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him. Now, again, Jesus took the initiative with Philip. He kind of let Andrew and John take the initiative with him. He kind of let Simon come to him. In this one, he again takes the, takes the initiative. Maybe because he knows uh, exactly what Nathanael needs and what he's thinking. He saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now what Jesus is doing here is a little bit of a uh, play on words, on a name, actually. See, what he's really suggesting is he's making a reference to the person of Jacob, the historical figure of Jacob. Now Jacob was known as the deceiver. He was known as the beguiler. But what was Jacob's name changed to? Jacob's name, some of you know, went, was changed from the deceiver or the usurper, the supplanter, the one even, even in the womb he was trying to like yeah, get what wasn't his. So he, he deceived his father. He deceived his brother. He deceived his father-in-law. He's got that, that was just characterized his life, even from his life in the womb. <laughs> and so Jesus here is saying, and, and after, after he had uh, wrestled with God, his, his, his name was changed from one who as a, as a deceiver to one who strives with God or one who struggles with God. So here Jesus is clearly making a reference to say, here is an Israelite that's not a Jacob. Here's an Israelite who is not a deceiver. Here's an Israelite, again, Jacob's, after his name changed, that's who he was. Here's an Israelite who, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, well, I like what you say, but uh, how do you know me, by the way? <laughs> how do you know me? He said, well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answers, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So we've got Jesus' initial interactions with five people, right? Andrew, most likely, most, most likely John, Andrew's brother Simon, who would be called Peter, Philip, and his buddy Nathaniel. What are some things we see and we can learn and we can take away from these interactions. I'm going to give you four things. The first one is this. I hope you can see the role of, quote unquote, others. Others. John points people to the lamb, right? He points his, actually his, his two disciples so that they can go and follow the one that needs to be followed. John points, John is one of the others that points people to Jesus. Andrew brought his brother Simon, right? Who would later be, be named by Jesus as Peter. Philip told Nathaniel, think about your life. Think about how 
we're all, we all have a little bit of a, not, I, I was, I, I was going to say debt, but I don't mean it that way, but we all have a little bit of a, of a, of a reality in our lives that someone else helped prepare us to, re- to that, bring us to that moment where we receive Jesus. And so one of the things that I wanted you to think about this week is who are the others in your life? Who are the people that helped you to come to faith in Christ? Maybe it was one or, one or both of your parents. Maybe it was an uncle. Maybe it wasn't a relative at all. Maybe it was a coach or a Sunday school teacher. Maybe it was a good friend. Maybe it was just some rando person that you met and you were walking far from God and you had this conversation and all of a sudden your life was changed. Who was your John? Who was your Andrew? Who was your Philip? Somebody probably had a role in you coming to faith in Christ Jesus if you're a follower of his today. You know, I thought, Maybe something you could do this week and maybe in the next couple days is just write a little note of appreciation, thanking that person. Now, I know for some of you, there's a possibility that person may no longer be living. I, re- I realize that. But maybe you could go ahead and write the note anyway, just as some, an expression. Maybe you've already done it. Maybe you've already expressed that thanks. But if you haven't, or maybe you want to just do it again, just thanking that person for their faithfulness and sharing with you and pointing you to the one who changed your life the role of others. And if they're still living, send them that text. Make that phone call. Drop them that email. Hey, do this crazy thing. Mail a card. It's kind of this novel thing that we've just come up with, right? You know, I know we're defunding it and everything. No, I don't want to go there. I don't want to get political or anything on that. But seriously, take a minute and appreciate, share some appreciation to those people who served as that role of others in your life. The second aspect of this is remember, You're called to be another as well. Who are you pointing to Jesus? Who comes to your mind right now? Who are the people that you have relationship with that you're sharing with them the life-changing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The role of others is an important takeaway. Second, I hope you can see the customized connection. (laughs) Jesus meets people exactly where they're at, right? To the two who started walking after him, just ask him a pretty... Pretty benign question. Hey, guys, what are you looking for? And then when they tell him, well, ask him a question, where are you staying? He says, well, why don't you just come and see? That's pretty benign, right? That's a pretty, that's a pretty like very low level of commitment. What are you looking for? Oh, where I'm staying? Come on, come and check it out. But to, to Simon, you know, he begins as soon as he meets him to kind of like raise the game a little bit. Simon, you were this, now you're going to be this. This is what you were known by. Now you're going to be known by this. Whoa. Whoa. That's his first interaction with them. Again, customized connection. That's not what he did with Andrew and John, but it's what he did with Simon. To Philip, he finds Philip. The others kind of he let find him, so to speak, kind of come after him. He goes after Philip and says, hey, follow me. Walk my way. Be on the road with me. Walk in my footsteps. And to Nathaniel, that one who was skeptical that anything good could come out of Nazareth, It's interesting. Jesus begins not with correcting that, but by affirming him. Here's an Israelite in in whom there is no deceit. He connects with him through affirmation, helping him to overcome his personal skepticism like a lot of people would have had about anything good being able to come from Nazareth. So think of it again in your own life. Think of the ways in which God customized his connection with you. How? Because he knew you personally. Jesus died 
for the world, right? There is that global, universal, sort of general aspect. But remember, He died for me, and He died for you, and He died for you, right? A classic text, not that we're about proof texting and lifting out a verse, you know, especially you know, lifting it out of context or anything, but that classic text that, that God has numbered the very hairs on our head, right? That's how well He knows us. And He knows us well enough to customize His connection with us. And Jesus demonstrates that. Third, I hope you can see the balance that Jesus exhibits between invitation and challenge. Come and see. That's very invitational, right? Again, very low level. Hey, just come and check it out. What are you looking for? Asking questions, inviting people, offering affirmation. Very invitational, very relational, but also follow me. Challenge. Invitation and challenge. Meets Peter, yes. Does he affirm Peter? Yes. Is he inviting him? Is he invitation with him? Yes. But he immediately begins to challenge him to live into his new identity of Little Rock. Not Simon any longer, but now you are the little rock. And that's going to be very, very important come near the end of, uh, end of Jesus' ministry and the ministry of the early church in the life of Peter. Also, you can, if we, well, I won't take the time to read it, but if you look at the last couple of verses in the text, verses 50 and 51, uh, Jesus says about Nathaniel, you know, that he's going to do, he's going to see greater things than the things that he's seen by the fact that Jesus says that he saw him under the fig tree. He says you're going to see greater things. And in fact, angels and, and you're going to see angels uh, ascending and descending on, on the Son of Man. That's another reason why it's a, an allusion to Jacob because he's referring to himself now as Jacob's ladder and the vision that Jacob had. And so, again, he's using that whole image of Jacob and reorienting uh, Nathaniel's understanding of it, again, which would have been a very challenging thing. So Jesus, again, his ministry. And if you just, if you just spend some time in the Gospels, one easy way to study them is just like in a note, <laughs> open up a note or get out an old piece of paper or whatever. And if you write, if you see the words of Jesus and his interaction with people, they usually fall into he's inviting them or he's challenging them. He's affirming them or he's correcting them. He has that relational component, that warmth and intimacy, and that component of get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men, not the things of God, right? So Jesus is doing both. It's not one or the other. And the last thing I hope you see, it's pretty obvious, is the necessity and power of revelation. The necessity and power of revelation. How did John know that Jesus was the Lamb of God? Because John said, God told me, the one on whom the dove would rest at his baptism, he's the one who is the Lamb of God. So God made it obvious for John. He revealed it to him exactly who was going to be the Lamb. Andrew proclaimed, we have found the Messiah. Nathanael said, you are the son, the king of Israel. Philip said in verse 45, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Later, Simon, when he was asked by Jesus, uh, Peter, who was, who, when he was asked by Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I would suggest to you that all of these affirmations by John, by Andrew, by Philip, by Nathaniel, and by Peter, all of them happen because of what Jesus said to Simon. You didn't come up with these things on your own. This isn't stuff that you figured out, but it was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. So the necessity and the power of revelation, 
that in, in, in the ministry of the church, we are so dependent as we point people to Jesus, as we invite them into relationship and challenge them toward obedience, as we customize our connection with people so that we meet them where we're at and we're always offering those next steps that they can take toward a new life in, in Christ or a growing life in Christ. It's all about depending on God opening the eyes of all of us and especially the, lie, the, uh, the eyes of unbelievers so that they can see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. So, the role of others in pointing to Jesus, his customized connection with each of us, the balance between inviting us into relationship and challenging us toward obedience, and the power and the necessity of revelation to make it all happen. I pray that as we've kind of just taken this first chapter of John under our belts over the last several weeks. It's been a, uh, a blessing and it's, been, and it's helped you uh, to grow in your understanding of Jesus as Logos, your understanding of the ministry of John the Baptist, and now even as Jesus begins to build his team of followers, your understanding of how he is doing that and what he's called from us in relationship to that. The worship team is going to have one more song to wrap up our service today. Uh, but just before they do that, I want to pray while they're coming up and preparing us to lead that. So why don't you bow your heads with me either at your homes or here on the lawn. Thank you, God, for this passage where we see the ministry of your Son, our Savior, Lord of all, King of kings. We pray, God, that just a real practical, simple thing that we could do this week, Lord, of just thinking about those people that have been influential in our life, people who have helped us to come to know your Son as our Savior. Bring them to our minds and help us to be able to express in some manner words of appreciation and gratitude for their ministry to us. Help us to remember, Lord, that we're called to be ambassadors to point others to you. And as we do it, God, may we not take this one-size-fits-all approach, but may we really begin to get to know people the way that your Son related to Philip, just a little bit different than Nathaniel, just a little bit different from Simon. Lord, we're so dependent on you. Your Holy Spirit has to open the eyes of those who don't know you yet. And your Holy Spirit has to soften the hearts of those who do so that we can continue to grow. So continue to reveal to us, Lord, your way, your will, through your word and through the presence of your Holy Spirit in our life. Thank you, God, and may we, may we just take this passage and, and kind of just let it kind of live with us and us live with it through the next couple of days as we reflect on how Jesus began to build his team of followers during his time on earth. We pray these things in his name. Amen.